Hi, I'm Awista Yub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Brian Goldstone of Class of 2021 National Fellow. Brian is writing a book about America's crisis of housing insecurity and the dramatic rise of the working homeless. Based in Atlanta, the project will examine the intersecting forces, gentrification, stagnant wages, inadequate tenant protections, and a legacy of housing discrimination that are making it impossible for a growing number of families to keep a roof over their heads. The book will be published by Crown. Brian received his PhD in cultural anthropology from Duke University. He's held a number of fellowships over the past several years, and most recently, he's a director of In the Press, a journalism and public writing initiative at Duke University's Franklin Humanities Institute. Brian, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. To start, can you just tell me a little bit more about the project you're hoping to develop over the course of this year, how you came upon the stories themselves, and also your interest in this issue broadly? I, I first came to this project through a curiosity about kind of the, the number of people that um, were coming up. It, my wife is actually a nurse practitioner at a community health center here in Atlanta where we live. And she was working in the HIV clinic and she was noticing an increasing number of patients who had like full-time jobs and yet were either doubling up with others, living in homeless shelters, and in some cases living in their cars or, or on the streets. So kind of the kernel for this project was just a, uh, a curiosity. Of, is that some kind of bizarre anomaly that people can be working and homeless at the same time? And in my naivete, um, I thought that was kind of a, a, an aberration or, or some kind of you know, departure from the norm where homelessness and housing insecurity is concerned. Because my assumption had always been, like many people, I think that that work is an exit from homelessness, not a kind of accompaniment to it. And so that initial curiosity kind of developed into a magazine piece that I wrote for the New Republic uh, called The New American Homeless. And that was following one family's journey the single mother um, in the piece um, was a full-time home health aide, and yet that wasn't enough to, to, to keep her and her children housed um, in Atlanta. And in following her journey, I saw that it wasn't just a matter of you know, inadequate wages um, versus the exorbitant rents that are increasingly being charged to, to live in the city, but it was also a matter of being pushed out of an area that she had more or less grown up in. And this, this area, like many places in America's urban centers is rapidly revitalizing, gentrifying. And the question of who is going to be able to enjoy the fruits of, of the city's new success uh, became a really urgent one uh, for me as a journalist and, and definitely for this family. So that was my, um, that's what led me to, to this longer term book project. And the project itself is kind of expanding on those, on those concerns and uh, incorporating um, a number of other families as well. Great. Thanks for that framing. So I do have a number of questions about the project and to, you know, more detail also about some of the conversations around homelessness today. But before I jump into those, I'm just curious about your own background. You know, you're a journalist, writer, anthropologist, you know, having received your PhD in cultural anthropology. Can you talk about the intersection of those disciplines as being both this journalist and anthropologist? Were you drawn to writing or anthropology first? And how did one lead to the other? And also, how does that inform your work? 
Yeah, thank you. So, yes, I, I did go to grad school and ended up getting my doctorate in anthropology. But throughout that experience, um, it was really writing that first led me to anthropology. Anthropology is a discipline, uh, at least cultural anthropology, which is the sub-discipline that I studied, where ethnography and, and writing is really a absolutely central part of, of that training and sensibility. And it was really anthropology's openness to, to a wide variety of, you know, sort of modes of expression, um, writing being um, a main one, but also even incorporating uh, images, uh, photography, film, sound, all sorts of things in order to capture the, the intricacies and nuances of a given phenomenon, culture, society, situation. And so for me, coming now into journalism, uh, over the last several years, I've, 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 there's definitely been a really, a really powerful kind of resonance of, between these these modes and uh, journalism on the one hand and anthropology on the other. And I don't necessarily see a lot of. There are of course differences, um, but especially with this project I'm working on now, um, it's really allowing me to to draw on my training as an ethnographer. This kind of like deep, deep embeddedness in a in a particular community or set of issues problems uh, or really a world you know an, an immersion in a world which is what I did um, in my in my doctoral training as an anthropologist so I, I do see them as very much resonant and complementary and it's kind of for me a, a question of audience and and aims so certainly my aims you know as a journalist and, and with this project are different than what they might be for someone who's working just strictly within a, a scholarly and university setting. So you said in your application that you submitted to us back in February that homelessness is one of the most urgent, misunderstood, and underexplored social issues of our time. You also said that it's a crisis that we collectively have created. Can you just tell me more about those two statements and unpack them for us? How have we created it and how have we allowed it to go on for so long? So I think that as, as far as it being one of the most misunderstood and, and underexplored social phenomena, social problems that we face in, in this country, I think that really goes to the, the fact that while homelessness really is this seemingly inescapable part of urban and increasingly even suburban life in this country, it's something that we have managed to kind of cordon off as intractable. And that has a lot to do with, I think, the narrative that we as a society have told ourselves about the reasons why people become homeless. Mass homelessness really emerged as we know it in the late 1970s and early 80s. And it had everything to do with the decimation of federal support for public housing. And nevertheless, the story that kind of emerged was that homelessness was about mental illness, that it was about addiction. And while those factors have always been an important part of why homelessness exists, as Jonathan Kozel, a journalist in the 80s put it, the reason why people become homeless is because of a lack of housing. And so we have to ask, like, what changed during that time that led to this large or, or really immense uh, problem? And it's in asking that question that we can really begin to imagine solutions to it. So I, I do feel like because of the story we've been telling ourselves, it's allowed us to both radically minimize the, the scale and magnitude 
of homelessness in the U.S. by focusing only on a very specific population, the most visible and conspicuous homeless and not those who are more hidden, um, like the working homeless, those who are precisely trying not to appear homeless. And so they are living in their cars, they're living with friends and relatives, they're, they're, there's just a profound instability um, in their situations. And, um, and so by widening the lens, I'm hoping to also widen our imagination of what is both possible as a society in in addressing this issue and widen our imagination of how we might just organize our society differently, like with something as basic as housing as a, as a fundamental right. So can we go back to that definition of homelessness and also the perception around it? So, you know, you said that often we view those who have addiction issues or psychiatric issues as the only ones who could be homeless. I mean, how did that become the only perception of unhoused populations? You know, how did that become the main primary vision for that um, or assumption around it? And I guess, too, how how do we move beyond that? Like, what is also your the goal of your work um, with this book? Like, how are you hoping to move us beyond that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to the first question of why we have come to associate homelessness and its causes with such a what, what is really a very, very um, narrow slice of the total homeless population in America, I think something like 80 to 85% of America's homeless population are families with children. And yet when we think of homelessness, we tend to think of those who are living in encampments, tents on the street, who, you know, those who are um, asking for money on the street or living on the sidewalk. And so, In some ways, it's understandable that that would be our association with homelessness because it is the most kind of conspicuous and unavoidable in physical space. And I also think that there has been an investment on the part of local government and federal government because that brand of homelessness is so visible to really orient our policies to the extent that policies exist and to the extent that resources have been allocated to addressing homelessness, I would argue that it's been addressed only toward this very, very narrow slice of the total homeless population. So yeah, that combination of conspicuousness with just a local and federal political desire to, you know, from a a cynical perspective, to just get people out of the way so that we can go about, we being, you know, more you know, middle upper class Americans go about our daily lives without, without having to face that reality. That the 80 to 85% of homeless families, of working homeless individuals, those who are hidden, students, um, even, you know, increasingly seniors, they're much easier to ignore. And uh, because of that, they've been essentially uncounted in the official tallies of homelessness, and they've been written out of the story of, of homelessness in America. So that's a, that's a very important goal of, of this project that I'm working on to, at the very least, draw our attention to the actual scope and scale of homelessness and housing insecurity in this country so that we can at least have an honest conversation about 
the steps beyond it. Yeah, I mean, that's a staggering number. And I, I know for me, I was really surprised to, to read that uh, in your article for, in the New Republic. You mentioned that there was quite an outpouring of emails that you received. What was some of the feedback that you did receive that was both surprising in some ways, and I guess also heartwarming in others? It was very encouraging to see the, the response to that article. There was a huge outpouring of support for the family I wrote about. And that was certainly heartening. Um, it, was, it, it was nice to see uh, so much compassion. It was a little, honestly, frustrating that um, I think we tend to individualize these kinds of stories, even though a big impetus for writing the article was to expose the very, very deep structural and systemic causes and, and, and really the immense scale of this problem to show that, that families like um, Ms. Goodman's, um, who the piece was about, are really a huge and growing population. Um, but nevertheless, you know, a lot of the response was, was geared toward how can we help her? And I think that's kind of a separate conversation about the kind of GoFundMeification of the social safety net in America and, and how we, I think, for various reasons have shied away from calling for, for policy changes. Um, so that was one kind of response. Another, and I think the most surprising, was just how many people identified with her story and said, this is my story as well. Really, not only across the country and in, in unexpected places across the country, but around the world. I mean, I got emails from Berlin, from London, from all over the world, people saying, "This, you, you can just switch my name out with hers. And I think that just speaks to the fact that this housing crisis is very much a global housing crisis it you know far from it being limited to a city like atlanta or gentrifying and revitalizing cities across america it's it really is a global phenomenon and i think that was a really really striking fact for me to have to grapple with in my sort of subsequent reporting on this issue yeah that makes sense um and it's great to i mean it's i guess it's probably reassuring in some ways too and reaffirming that you were able to strike a chord with so many people yeah, absolutely. And and I am grateful that, you know, even the outpouring of support for this family, but I feel like, you know, in this book, my hope is that readers will leave knowing that this is not just um, a human interest story about, you know, families struggling to survive, but this is a failure, a really fundamental failure of our capacity as a country to provide not for, you know, the quote, least of these, but really for our essential workers, you know, the people who are making our cities and, and this country function. And, you know, for from the beginning of this country, the nation's wealth has been generated in a radically unjust way, where only certain people were able to enjoy the, the fruits of that wealth, um, while others were systematically robbed of it. And I feel like if this book accomplishes nothing else, it will show that that is the story of homelessness today. So your book is focused on Atlanta, and you're looking at four families there. Why Atlanta? What's the impetus for, for that city? And are there others that are also struggling in the same way? Yeah, the most kind of banal and immediate answer to that is Atlanta is where I live. And um, I've lived here for the last four years or so. And so it is a place that is easier for me as a as a journalist and ethnographer to to really go deep into the everyday lives of, of those I'm uh, working with and writing about. 
So that's kind of the, the practical logistical response. But I think it's important to ground the book in, in a city like Atlanta because first of all, you know, most of our kind of national conversation about homelessness and the accompanying housing crisis um, has tended to take place in you know, the coastal metropolitan areas like New York, LA, San Francisco, Seattle. And something important is being left out of those conversations, which is that this is not just limited to these booming economies um, and the kinds of rents that you see in a city like New York, I think are often dismissed by those in other places as just a kind of um, monstrous departure from, from the norm. And there was a report released just this week, in fact, by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, um, its annual out-of-reach report that showed that not a single state in the entire country can someone afford a modest two-bedroom apartment making minimum wage earnings. So I think, you know, basing it here in Atlanta um, drives home that, that point that this really is a national problem, not reducible to, uh, to cities like New York or L.A., but also Atlanta has a progressive, a relatively progressive city leadership. Um, Atlanta, you know, over the last few decades has emerged as a kind of black mecca. And I think that makes it also a very interesting place to explore these issues. My conviction is that you really can't talk about what's happening today as far as homelessness and housing is concerned without talking about a long legacy of housing discrimination, redlining, white flight in a city like Atlanta and the subsequent now, you know, return of, of white renters and, and homeowners um, to the urban core. So all of, those, all of those dynamics and changes, I think, are essential ingredients in understanding what we're seeing. And it makes Atlanta just a very complicated and, and I think, compelling place to, to ask these questions. So in your application, you said, you know, that there are myriad of actors and institutions alternatively fueling, profiting off of, or trying, however effectively, to stem this crisis. Can you give us examples of each of those groups and the roles they play in either supporting this crisis and also how others are mitigating it? Mm -hmm. So as far as like fueling this crisis, gentrification is definitely a big part of the story. There's something about the word gentrification, though. Of course, it has, it has become kind of taken for granted and, and almost cliche to invoke that term in discussing housing issues. I think what we're seeing today increasingly, and this is what brings it onto a global scale, is that it isn't just gentrification popularly conceived, but it's really the taking over of land and, and homes by growing corporate interests, private equity firms. Um, after the 2008 foreclosure crisis, a lot of homes that were previously occupied by, by homeowners were bought at dirt cheap prices by um, big corporations. And uh, Blackstone is, is the most notorious of these and really turned what had been homes for people, you know, in a way of generating wealth through home ownership into rental properties. And so there's immense profits that are being made off of the increasing inability of people to keep themselves housed because that kind of competitive marketplace um, drives, up, drives up the costs and also creates less supply. You know, that would be one actor, I think, that is definitely profiting off of this crisis. And it's been the unwillingness of policymakers to intervene and prevent these kinds of speculative takeovers and, quote, investments, you know, from 
being given free reign. That's definitely one example. And I think, you know, what makes this project so complicated is that even myself as, as a resident of Atlanta, I think we're all implicated. Those of us who are enjoying the amenities of a city that is in the process of transforming itself, those very amenities, those very opportunities for green space and so forth are what are making it impossible in many cases for people to remain housed here. So I would say that just as much as Blackstone is implicated in this, so are those of us who are um, enjoying the, the benefits of, of this you know, urban lifestyle. And as, as far as ameliorating and, and mitigating this crisis, it's been amazing to, to work very closely following school social workers, you know, in public elementary schools who are walking alongside families and giving them just the modicum of support that they're able to and praying with them, praying with a, a single father or single mother um, at, at one o'clock in the morning, just being there to witness those encounters and those moments has been really important for me. I think the sad reality is that those, those moments are not enough to, to truly mitigate this, which I believe can only really happen on a large scale policy level. But nevertheless, there's a whole range of people whose everyday existence is preoccupied and consumed with just standing alongside their neighbors and without judgment. And, and also, I would be totally remiss to leave out the growing movement for housing justice in America. And in Atlanta, there's an organization called the Housing Justice League, which has really been at the forefront of both drawing attention to the severity and consequences um, of these dynamics that we're talking about, and also through organizing and activism, trying to stop it. And I think that that is one of the most dramatic emergences over the last few years is, is really seeing political leaders take up uh, this, this mantle um, and to make housing the inescapable political issue that, that I believe it needs to be. So, the, so that movement is definitely going to be foregrounded in this, in this project and I think um, needs to be part of any conversation about what's happening today. So with the book, you're covering the story of four families. And one thing you were very clear about is that you did want to start the narrative much earlier in the lives of these families' journeys, not while they were living in poverty, but before. And part of that goal was to not fall into the pitfalls in terms of reporting on poverty. So can you talk about those pitfalls and how you hope to rise above that with this narrative? Yeah. So... I do feel like, and, and maybe this is my uh, anthropological background and sort of ethnographic sensibility, but I, I do believe that by not simply looking at people in their most harrowing and tragic moments, but by expanding the frame temporally and looking at their lives before this crisis happened in their lives is really important, not just on a kind of narrative level and uh, in imbuing the narrative with human character, you know, which human beings, you know, we are more than these awful moments. And these families and, and individuals who I'm writing about are more than those moments. Um, and they are at pains to to describe their lives prior to falling into homelessness and so I, that, that, that's just very important to me as a kind of moral and ethical 
decision to show people the, the fullness of people's lives and also to show the, the kind of contingency that it didn't have to be this way. You know, that this was not inevitability in their lives. There were, there were very particular circumstances, often almost invariably beyond their control, that led to them being in this situation. But, you know, analytically as well, I think it's really important that homelessness be reframed and reconceived, not as this kind of terminal condition, um, this almost a, a spiritual, this phenomenon of being like struck with homelessness, which is how I think intuitively we, we sometimes imagine the homeless as this kind of static block of the population, rather by expanding the time scale that I'm um, examining people's lives and, and the time I'm spending with them and, and hearing about their larger journey, um, I think it, it shows that homelessness is, is a kind of spectrum, that people occupy different poles of that spectrum at, at various times of their life, but it isn't this kind of uh, terminal condition. And I think that's just a, a very, very important point for this project to show that homelessness and housing insecurity that it's a very flexible and variable set of circumstances. And, and that should orient our solutions to homelessness and housing insecurity in ways that I would argue we, we haven't been attuned to. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really powerful. You know, when I think about just this year, when we, when we look back on it now, and I'm sure the families you're covering have just struggled in so many ways. Is there anything that gives you hope right now during this challenging time for so many of us? I think the hope is that this time in laying bare in such a unmistakable and unavoidable way, the inequities of our society, the injustices that we have just agreed to live with for decades, really, that these are being laid bare in, in such a striking way that a kind of reaction and response to it has, has emerged almost in an equal force. And I think the most hopeful thing that we're witnessing today, it's no accident that the uprisings over the last couple of months have connected the dots between systemic racism, police violence, and things like raising the minimum wage and uh, securing the right to housing for every American, and especially Americans who were, again, uh, systematically denied this right for, for so many years. So I think that the most hopeful aspect of, of what we're seeing today is a refusal to, to, to simply live with this as a normal part of American life. And I think it just remains to be seen what the ultimate outcomes of that uprising and, and resistance will be. So my final question, and it's a question I think no author likes to answer, but where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? I hope to be uh, done with the first draft of the book um, a year from now. The draft is due in September 2021. So I will be finished with the reporting. I am excited to see where the reporting continues to take me. And I am totally overwhelmed and daunted, but also excited at the prospect of putting all of this together into a compelling story. So that's where I hope to be a year from now. Well, we're excited to support you on this journey. Um, and Brian, thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews at the class of 2021.